0: Welcome everyone to uh, the London Aesthetics Forum. Today we're very pleased to have Eddie McGungle from Leeds coming down to tell us about the significance of the artwork. Eddie.
1: Thanks very much. Um, okay, so first a couple of apologies. The first thing is that um, the paper's a bit involved and it's also a chapter, like in a kind of later chapter, or mid-chapter in a book. So I'm going to read it just because I want I don't want to, kind of like improvise it because so I'm going to miss out some of the very complicated ins and outs, which I also apologise for, but it was so complicated. The second thing is that the paper is defending a broadly a kind of broadly Kantian normative theory. One of the downsides of that is it means that you have to read a lot of Kantian's kind of moral theories and so on. Which had kind of two disadvantages. One, Kantians tend to write in such a way that if you took out the words the rational will and replaced it with the words thetans then it's indistinguishable from Scientology it just sounds like (laughs) should we love the rational will, is that the same as respecting it it's just exactly the same and so some of that I'm sure is spilled over into the style the second thing is that Kantians tend to be very preachy and this is also a preachy chapter it was written in 2008 when New Labour were still in power and I was in the States and so I'm preaching about (laughs) kind of things that I was feeling grumpy about at the time, now I was feeling grumpy about different things, those will probably make it into the the revised chapter. Okay, so let me start. Okay, so the significance of that world. Our everyday relationships to art are enabled and mediated by the relationships that we stand in to other people. Teachers, curators, dealers, artists, librarians, marketing professionals, donors, restoration experts, critics, taxpayers, journalists, politicians parents, lawyers, enthusiasts, enthusiastic consumers. Our joint activities are somehow related to that slightly more technical and nebulous concept, the art world. In this paper I'm going to offer a re-evaluation of the normative significance of such activities and institutions. I'm going to suggest that the art world provides the practically essential means to the rationally compulsory end of discharging our aesthetic duties, by which I mean not duties which are aesthetic, pretty duties, I mean duties that are art in the same way that you might have duties to yourself, or duties to other people, or duties to the state, Uh, the books about duties to art, I suggest that we ought to take proper steps towards fostering and maintaining the existence of any essential means towards compulsory ends, and are thus obliged to offer due cooperation with art world institutions. Okay, so I begin by reviewing some of the recent philosophical treatments of the art world, and go on to explain how their most compelling insights can be smoothly accommodated by my account, as you would expect. Art world institutions are thus ultimately awarded a special place by norms of rational intimacy. I then turn to address two potential sources of concern about such an account. Doesn't such an account fail to give due way to the active power of the art world to shape and order patterns of response to works? After all, if art world and duty are related as means to ends, doesn't this require that we construe the ends as having their nature independently of the means. So the, the means is just a kind of reliable way of discharging the ends. But that's surely implausible. As historicist, post-structuralist, institutionalist and proceduralist accounts of art, which the forms of our engagement with artistic activity are shaped by the art world structures that precede us and embed us. That's the first word. The second worry is this. Won't such a treatment inevitably involve an overly optimistic an idealising account of our world structures. If such an account is forced to ignore the manifest existence of past and present art world vices, elitism, decadence, West centricity, sexism, exploitation and so on, then it's surely unacceptable. In the second half of the chapter, I'm going to argue that both of these worries are misplaced. Both the worry that it makes you too passive or it's too instrumentalist, and that uh, it's too conservative or kind of optimistic. The success-based deontology that I'm defending, success-based deontology is basically the idea that we have duties to art, and that art is a kind of derivative concept with the fundamental concept being the concept of a masterwork. To be an artwork on this account is to be something that is appropriate to hold to the standard of masterwork. In the same way that you might think to be a belief is to be something that is appropriate to hold to the standard of knowledge, to be an action is to be something that is appropriate to hold to the standard of permissible action. Okay, so my aim is to strike the right balance between ideal theory, on the one hand, normative theory, and the messy, compromised, culturally embedded nature of art world life with all its joys and limitations. Okay, so section one, art world institutions. Recent aesthetics and analytic tradition has laid heavy stress on two aspects of socio-artistic institutions. First, Arthur Dantel argued that our canonical relationships with artworks were made possible only through our inhabitation of, quotes, an atmosphere of artistic theory and art world. That's the first thing, the kind of danto idea that um, an atmosphere of artistic theory mediates our relationships with art. Secondly, broadly proceduralist theories of art, such as those developed by Dickie and Davis, argue that to be an artwork is to be imbued with a certain kind of status, acquired by standing in the right kind of relationship to art world institutions. And I take it that's different than what Danto means, and Danto distinguishes himself from those kind of theories. Aspects of each of those conceptions has been integrated into more recent historicist accounts of art's definition, and also proper reception of art. If let's consider Danto first, Danto is interested, as I read him, in the structure and power of artistic theories and concepts. So he writes, To see something as art at all demands nothing less than this an atmosphere an atmosphere of artistic theory, and knowledge of the history of art. Art is the kind of thing that depends for its existence upon theories. Without theories of art, black paint just is black paint, and nothing more. Perhaps one can speak of what the world is like, independently of any theories we might have regarding it, i isn't sure that's true, but it's plain there could not be an art world without theory, for the art world is logically dependent upon theory. It's essential to the nature of our study that we understand the nature of an art theory, which is so powerful a thing as to detach objects from the real world and to make them part of a different world, an art world, a world of interpreted things. Okay, so as I read to his theories of art seem to play at least three explanatory roles, one metasemantic, one experiential, one ontological. First, they serve to determine facts about what concepts we are capable of applying to works and perhaps they also individuate such concepts and tell us what it is to be that very concept. They thus partially determine, in turn, a second range of facts about the potential intentions of artists, since the artist's intentions will be ones that are shaped by the context that is possible for the artist to possess. And the correspondent conceptually laid in experiences and evaluations of critics, since again how it's possible to correctly experience a work will be partly a function of the concepts that you can bring uh, the work under. It's not possible in uh, Roman times to bring things under the concept of post-impressionist. And that's not not just a kind of contingent limitation. Um, Finally, the existence and nature of artworks themselves is determined in part by the relationships with such theories, which serve to transform the commonplace into the remarkable, and explain the difference between artworks and materially indiscernible mere real things. So three things they, they basically do some work. The art world does some work fixing the context of our thoughts. That then partially determines facts about the intentions of artists and the experiences of critics and other res- uh, readers. And the existence of artworks themselves is ontologically dependent upon such theories. Okay, so that's Danto. Let's turn now to the institutional theories. Institutionalist theories of art such as, though, such as those elaborated by Davies, Dickey, and Diffie, place less, place less emphasis on artistic theory, it's less about the concepts that we, we deploy, and more on real world socio-cultural structures. So, in definition of art, Davies wrote that he was tempted to endorse a sophisticated institutionalism. And this is what he says. He says something's being a work of art is a matter of its having a particular status. This status is conferred by a member of the art world, usually an artist, who has the authority to confer such status in question by virtue of occupying a role within the art world to which that authority attaches. The art world is an informal institution structured in terms of its roles. Such a position is not insensitive to the attractions. I agree Davies David is a proceduralist. Something an artwork if it's created... Uh, along the lines governed by certain procedures there are other positions that deny that functionalist and historicist positions for example but Davies tries to recognise the merits of those rival accounts he says the art world has a history it grew from non-institutional social practices and has continued to develop through time, the practices through which it arose were ones that were concerned with what we now recognise as the point or functions of art at first the art world served those functions directly But through time, the institution has altered in ways, as a result of which, it continues to operate sometimes without direct heed of that function. Art worlds other than that of 20th century European culture could and do exist. (coughs) So even though there are differences between the institutionalist view and the Danto view, differences which Danto is very sensitive to, David's art world seems to play philosophical roles that are in some sense similar to Dante's. Artworks are in some sense conceptually, genetically, or ontologically dependent upon the public institutional practices that compose artworks. So, David says, has the art world never arisen, there would never have been any artworks. Artworks are the product of the art world. They need not be artefacts, as that term is normally understood, but they must be public objects available, in principle if not always in fact, for appreciation and interpretation by the art world audience. And I take that must as something like a conceptual must or ontological ontological must. OK, so on both accounts, then, appeal to the artwork does important philosophical work. And unsurprisingly, such theorists employ a broadly philosophical methodology. They construct arguments to metaphysical, phenomenological, and evaluative conclusions, making evidential appeal to a mixture of conceptual reflection, a priori principle, evident features of art world practice, An analytic interpretation of significant, actual, and hypothetical works. But what they're primarily explaining is the nature of um, art and the the nature of aesthetic concepts, um, and they're doing so by broadly philosophical methodology. Now we can contrast that kind of theory of the art world, philosophical theory I'll call it, with um, related social and cognitive scientific theories, social science and cultural science theory. So, for example, I take it there can be theories of the art world that attempt to weigh the economic benefits of investing in a given country's cultural infrastructure or examine the neurological effects of priming subjects with information about the quality of wine that they're about to taste. Both of those things have been carried out. And those kind of theories are going to typically employ investigative and confirmatory strategies that look significantly different from those employed by philosophers of the art world although there's going to be, obviously, significant degrees of overlap. So I'm going to refer to the first attempt at theory construction as philosophical, the latter as social-scientific, and, of course, um, it's going to be the interest of both parties to integrate their theories with the findings of the other. Moreover, a proper integration of the two accounts will often have important normative implications. Analytic aestheticians have tended to concentrate on the relationship between art world response and aesthetic value. That's tended to be the area of normative interest. But there are, of course, many other areas of overlap. The extent to which Andy Warhol's factory, or the management of the dealer-organised, motel-based factories in which, in, in which much contemporary Aboriginal tourist art is produced, the extent to which those involve unduly exploitative relations of various kinds, is not one that can be settled, in the absence of detailed empirical knowledge, nor in the absence of developed moral theory. My concern here is simply to emphasise that the two styles of account, the philosophical and the social scientific, seem rather different in form and ambition, and it will be a good making feature of an account of the normative significance of the art world, if it can explain its relationship to both types of theory. So I'm going to try to say why, from the point of view of normative aesthetics, we ought to be interested both in the philosophical type of theory and in the social and cognitive scientific. We can similarly distinguish ideal and realistic treatments of the art world. The former style of account will abstract from much of the concrete empirical detail of actual art worlds, resting most of its philosophical weight upon some privileged or foundational set of structures or relations. This approach need not exclusively, or even typically, encompass philosophical theory. So we can imagine, down to the LIC a set of economic theories of art world practice that are developed from quite general idealising assumptions by the aims and goals of artists and audiences. So that will be an ideal theory, but it will be a social scientific theory. Conversely, much of the interesting extant philosophical work in this area draws strength from realism of treatment. This approach requires detailed and careful intention to the way the art world actually works. Philosophers have often constructed their theories to accord smoothly with real-world data. For example, which new styles and forms are actually taken up, championed or shown in galleries, which kind of considerations are taken to be critically appropriate, what kind of popular art make up the routine backdrop of art in our lives, and so on. And those aren't what I'm going to call ideal, those are what I'm going to call realistic treatments. So it matters to a realistic treatment whether horror is a popular genre or not, but not particularly to an ideal treatment. Okay, so the account I'm going to defend in the next section is primarily ideal and philosophical in form. It tells us why, from a normative point of view, we would require something like an art world, even if the history of art had gone quite differently than it actually did. Even if cinema had never developed as an art form, for example. Or even if our conditions differed markedly. The... um, world was a much more equal or just place than it is for example so my theory marks out normatively relevant features of such an art world and then I'm going to go on in the final sections to explain how an ideal theory is nevertheless of its nature in harmony with the findings of social scientific and realistic treatment, so it's not something which is cut off from those, it's something that um, doesn't make sense except as integrated with those theories. Okay, so that was by way of kind of backdrop First of all, what people have said about the art world and analytic aesthetics and, and some other areas, and secondly, what I'm aiming to do in the first instance—to give an ideal philosophical treatment—and then to explain how that relates to the social scientific and um, realistic treatment. Okay, so, in the preceding section, I set up some of the—I set out some of the theoretical roles that current aesthetics assigns to the art world. I suggested that, though important, i sorry—I suggest now that, though important, these extant theoretical treatments omit one of the most important ones the de facto essential role that the art world plays in allowing us to moderate our behaviour in the light of duties to art. Okay, so I want to draw an analogy between normative aesthetics and political philosophy, in particular between the art world and Kantian treatments of the state, thought of as political state. For Kantian political theorists, the only means by which Um, human rational agents can realistically hope to achieve their mandatory ends of acting permissibly is by willing the existence of some broadly liberal political structures the state. So you can't act beneficently, you can't do what you need to do for example making sure people have enough to eat, making sure people don't die in childbirth, making sure that people are punished for crimes and so on unless you will the existence of cooperative um, community of people working together to allow those kind of things to happen. Such structures are essential if we are to secure the kind of conditions that we, as limited vulnerable creatures, require if we are to have a chance of pursuing our projects in accordance with duty. The state will help us coordinate, regulate and implement gentle behaviour. For example, by means of just taxation, rule of law and defence, against external threats. So again, this is at the level of (coughs) ideal philosophical theory. We're not suggesting that actual states are like this. We're talking about what kind of state would be justified by the duties you have towards other people and towards yourself. Given our nature as dependent rational animals, the state so construed is a de facto essential means to duty. This is not a fact that could easily have failed to obtain, the fact that we're limited fallible creatures, who rely on others for much of our access to goods, including securing the preconditions for successful rational agency for our own lives, getting an education, getting enough to eat, securing yourself from bodily harm uh, by others, being allowed to pursue your own projects. That's a highly modally stable feature of human life. It couldn't easily have been the case that there were human beings that didn't need other people to bring them up from being babies. Right? That was a very distant possible world in which babies come into the world fully educated and capable of defending themselves and feeding themselves, for example. So we need other people. Okay, So I follow such theories in suggesting that genuinely and rationally willing, a mandated end requires one to will permissible, indispensable means to that end, and thus that we ought to will the existence of a just state. That just means a community of people helping one another to fulfil their duty. We're in a similar situation, I suggest, with respect to the art world. As a limited, dependent individual, I have no hope of preserving areas of outstanding natural beauty from the depredations of rapacious oil companies. I can't realistically hope to be able to preserve, display, and study masterworks and other important works. There's no prospect of my educating myself from scratch about the history of art without the help of libraries, art historians, museums, curators, record companies, organised groups and enthusiasts, and so on. If I'm rationally and sincerely to will that I stand in the right kind of relationship to the value of art, as I argued earlier in the book, I must will permissible essential means to that end. Cooperating within our world that tends towards the coordination, regulation and implementation of dutiful behaviour is permissible and it's also practically indispensable, because that's the only way that we can look after things that are of value. Therefore I have a duty to will the existence of such a set of structures and to take reasonable steps to cooperate with it because I have a duty to preserve the very, very valuable things. The only way in which I can hope to preserve and understand and stand in my relations to them is if other people are helping me, so I have to will that other people help me, insofar as I'm rational. So, for example, it might be the case that I ought to allow a certain proportion of my income, where necessary, to go towards defending and preserving great works and uniquely wonderful landscapes. It looks it might be the case that I ought to give due weight to the special duties that constitute given art world roles critic, curator, philosopher of art. It might be my duty to contribute in a fair way way to the success of worthwhile art world institutions. So, for example, paying voluntary fees where I can say, or helping support art forms that I have a special interest in, or voting for political parties that will give due weight to the value of art or whatever. Okay, so this view, this is the view that I'm attracted to, seems to relate ideal and realistic treatments of the art world and philosophical and social scientific account in the right way. The above argument gives us a regulative ideal, I'm not suggesting that the actual art world is like this, it gives us an ideal by which we can see how to improve our extant social arrangements and art world structures, which we can scarcely hope to implement in every respect, but which can act as a principle of revision, principle provision and improvement. The actual art world is likely to be flawed, ineffective, vicious, but as long as participating in in broad terms is essential to discharging our duty, then we will be bound by its norms unless these are flagrantly egregious. So just like none of us live in a perfect democracy, but we are, have a duty to obey the law by canteen and a duty also to perfect the state, so that to make it better, but while we're making it better we shouldn't destroy it um, similarly there will be a duty to um, participate with worthwhile art world structures and to improve the ones that aren't worthwhile so we'll have a duty to pay a fair share of tax towards broadly aesthetic ends to avoid exploiting essential art world structures via forgery or plagiarism and so on we'll have a duty to take reasonable steps to help move the extant art world structures closer to the ideal perhaps just through selective voting Willingness to think for oneself rather than being driven by an exaggerated deference or aesthetic snobbery, so on. So a realistic social scientific understanding of how the art world actually works will be essential if we're to have a hope of improving its functioning in a way which is regulated by a philosophically developed ideal theory. So the the real theory tells us where we. Sorry, the philosophical ideal theory tells us what we ought to be trying to do. The realistic social scientific theory tells us how things actually work. We, we improve things which don't work all that well by looking at what the ideal theory tells us to do. So that's how the various parts join up. Appeal to such a role for the art world can help further assuage lingering concerns about the demandingness of an aesthetic deontology. Even given my... So I argued earlier that it's, it's fine to think there are duties to are. But someone might still feel that uh, such a position is bound to hold agents to an unreasonably high and narrow standard of behaviour. So imagine that we have a subject, Sam, who loves science and spends most of his waking time thinking and reading about it. Sam may be a completely aesthetic ignoramus and philistine, but is he really offending against duty? The answer may depend on Sam's relationship to the social structures that surround him if he routinely contributes his fair share of taxation towards securing the place of masterworks and other important works, does not offer undue interference with appropriate art law practices, takes reasonable steps to ensure that his own projects do not conflict with the aesthetic duties of others, then we may sensibly count him as having accorded with the, um, the relevant norms. He's discharging his duties to art by being part of a community in which he knows that art is being taken care of. We can note that such a position may be open to change and that Sam should take this into account in organising his practical life. Because it's no doubt a sensible arrangement, given the many goods that require respect, if personal aptitude and inclination is allowed to play a significant role in how people allocate their efforts. And this impression is reinforced if we allow that political and social structures can be arranged in such a way so as to provide compensating incentives for tasks that do not attract sufficient support free personal choice alone. Moreover, it's given that the performance of many dutiful actions require a high degree of expertise, it seems sensible to coordinate our activities through a network of specialists, doctors, historians, physicists. So the idea is we have duties, we have epistemic duties, we have moral duties, duties to other people, duties to ourselves, duties to the state, duties to art. There are lots of good things in the world. Here's a sensible way of dealing with those good things make it the case that the people who are really interested in fulfilling one of them get to specialise in that, If you are really interested in the value of science or the value of um, you know, beneficence or whatever it is, then specialise in that as long as you don't thereby leave other goods kind of hanging. But given the fluid nature of human life, we also have to be open to the possibility that we may be called on to act in circumstances that we're ill-equipped for. We have to plan this rationally you're not going to be fulfilling your duty if you're not planning not taking proper steps to um, take into account things that could easily happen what could easily happen is the conservative party could get into power and cut arts funding or not give due weight arts funding and you ought to take proper uh, steps to be in a position to coordinate that few of us would wish to be in a position where we couldn't rescue a child from drowning due to a failure to learn to swim for example one of the reasons you might say look you should learn to swim not because you particularly like swimming, but because um, it's, it's a kind of skill that you ought to have in order to be able to um, take, do care of your duties of beneficence. Similarly, we would demonstrate an undue deference to experts if we allowed ourselves to remain so politically ignorant so, so that to make informed voting decisions, we were forced to rely solely on mass media advice. So you ought to take minimal epistemic, you ought to fulfill enough of your epistemic duties to allow you to vote properly, to make sure that you're not um, kind of imperiling things of value if you just are always guided by what the telegraph the guardian or the sun tells you to do, then you won't be in a position to properly discharge your epistemic duties, if you're so specialised that you're relying on others in a way that might, as it were not be reliable, then you're going to be open to normative criticism and it seems to me that Sam might be in a similar situation with respect to masterworks. So given the many social structures that surround him, and with which he's prepared to cooperate, he may count as discharging his aesthetic duties to a reasonable extent. But we may also feel that Sam is open to the charge of to normative criticism, of taking an unacceptably high degree of risk, if he does not take the kind of steps that we would require in these other areas. We may feel that someone's open to a form of normative criticism if they fail to learn basic first aid, for example, or what the fire drill is, or how to drive, in cases where something important might be lost if things go badly. And similarly, we might feel that Sam may be in a poor position to bring up children in a way that equips them for the world in which they will be bound by aesthetic duties. You might not be able to sustain proper cooperation with practices of taxation that you can't see any point in or to see when something aesthetically important will be at risk. So the idea is if you can if you allow yourself to be so if you allow your aesthetic sensibility, your aesthetic character to be so underdeveloped that you can't see why the government's spending any money on the arts, or you don't know how to bring up your children to take proper steps to cooperate with the art world, um, then you'll be open to norms of criticism. No one's asking that Sam should be a polymath any more than anybody's asking the first aider to be a brain surgeon. But we might expect that some processes of self-development would be a sensible response to the uncertainties and insecurities of human life. Is Sam really entitled to presume that events re- resulting from a sudden acceleration of global warming won't place him in a position where he might, where he might not be forced to help secure valuable achievements? Do we, are we really clear that we won't be in a putting decision where we have to decide which artworks should be funded and which ones shouldn't? Is he really in a position to tell whether his local opera house merits the urgent aid that it's requesting or to tell whether national lottery funding of Eaton is a reaction to social privilege as opposed to the value of art? If Sam's, if Sam's subcontracting of his aesthetic activities results from inertia, an over concern with personal comfort, rather than a sensible response to a coordination problem, then we may reasonably find his behaviour open to normative reproach. This isn't an elitist demand that he pretend to like what he cannot enjoy. It's a requirement that one's behaviour is made sensitive to the reasons that one has, including the conclusive reasons we have to value masterworks. Sam's a creature of philosophical example. His set of preferences arrived fully formed atypical in content and putatively blameless in internal organisation. In real life, subjects like SAM tend to be made rather than born. The preferences may be modified and cultivated by social practices that thereby in turn open themselves to normative aesthetic evaluation. Is a broad-based education system better assuring respect for the place of aesthetic value than a narrow one? Do centrally funded museums pander in a blameworthy way to economic pressure towards tourism, sorry, or empire-friendly narratives of national greatness, or crass post other worship? I mean these are genuine questions, not rhetorical questions. Do local cultural structures embrace an unhelpful contrast between science and art? Is the creation of good popular art hindered by monopoly control of the media, or a public funding system that's directed towards sustaining essentially exclusive hobby horses, of the aspirant aristocracy. These questions cannot be addressed without the development and integration of well-grounded, empirical, normative, critical and philosophical theories of the art world and its relation to masterpieces. Cooperation with art world structures is not something that consists in modes of outward observance. Rather it involves sets of permissible actions. So consider Sue who regularly attends galleries and art cinemas, reads voraciously, makes sure to direct a sizable amount of charitable giving to worthy aesthetic causes. If Sue is motivated solely by a desire to demonstrate and reinforce her social superiority, then her behaviour does her no credit and will not serve to discharge, or may not serve to discharge, the demands of aesthetic duty. For all we say, said, Sue may be even more blind to the value of art than Sam, Sam can at least see that his relationship to masterpieces is something that needs securing. He just wants to have all of his responsibilities in that area discharged by his representatives. So he basically gives money to taxation by the government and then they take care of looking after the aesthetically important things. But Sue, as so far described, needsn't care about the demands of art. If she's willing to adjust her behaviour to whatever course of activity is viewed as socially admirable, whether or not that serves to give the masterworks their due, then she's not acting duty. It's the fact that she's brought up, been brought up in a society where a certain form of cultural capital is given a special weight that explains her choice of actions. She's not responding well to reasons that she has. Sue may be adept at explaining why a given artwork approximates that masterwork and mimicking the behaviour of those who give appropriate attention to that fact, so she might be indiscernible if you just looked at how she behaved. But mimicking is not acting from duty dispersed for other Appeal to art world structures can explain the existence of several of the putative aesthetic duties that we identified earlier. I think I've, I've put some of these. So I've got some kind of putative kind of things where we might feel that like we're doing some things with respect to art that we ought not to do. Buying an irreplaceable masterwork and destroying it or on a whim. And not paying... If you've ever been to the Metropolitan Museum in New York, basically you don't have to pay to get in, but they invite a donation. Absolutely every philosopher of art I've ever met says, oh, just give them 25 cents or something. I'm like, I thought you guys cared about art. I'm like, no, no, just stiff up, Stiff them, they have plenty of money. Just stiff them. <laughs> uh, so that's something wrong to me about that. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, something seems wrong to me about the following kind of case, a mere testimony case. Influential film critic writes a, wreck, a negative review of a film, wholly based on testimony of someone else who saw the film. They didn't go and see it themselves. Uh, and there's some other cases there too, a concentrate on those ones. Okay, so how could appeal to art world structures enter into, in part, the explanation of what's going wrong with those things? Even if one can always get away with donating the minimum amount when visiting a museum, one may justly be criticised if one thereby takes an unfair advantage of a system that's designed to allow the poor to visit. If the system can only work, if people generally chip in a reasonable proportion of their income, then taking advantage of lower bounds for selfish reasons, the lower bounds are there so that the Metropolitan Museum can allow anybody to go in. They're not there so that ana- analytic aestheticians, who are some of the highest paid people in the world, can take advantage of it and then go and spend even more money on wine, <laughs> which is what they to spend on. It. Um, the cost need not be counted in danger to preservation of the works. It may well be the case that the, the works will, will be in no danger. So, for example, imagine that eventually what will happen is the museum will abandon that procedure because of widespread flouting by knowledge aestheticians, instead instituting a flat fee system with income-related waivers instead. So if you're poor, you have to carry a card that says, I'm poor, and then you get in for free. This will now entail that poor people have to enter into uncomfortable and hierarchical social relationships in order to discharge their aesthetic duties. For example, the duty to cultivate and develop their own taste and aesthetic knowledge and those of their dependents, who will foreseeably take on the aesthetic duties of care as the future members of the society. One's own flouting will likely, therefore, involve acting on a consideration that reasonable agents couldn't, in general, endorse. For agents will care about setting up stable social structures, adequate to secure due patterns of respect for masterworks, in a way that doesn't needlessly make it uncomfortable for people to, to kind of, people are going to be less likely to go to museums if they have to hold up the current thing I am poor, or if they have to pay a lot of money to go in and they don't have a lot of money. And thus, acting for something that seems ill-suited to play the role of a reason, one impermissibly violates rational constraints on action. Similar remarks could be made about the film critic who writes an accurate review, damning a film that he has not seen. In the case we imagine, the film critic relied on what was de facto reliable aesthetic testimony of a friend that he had reason to trust. But the role, the social role of film critic, has constraints built into it constraints that are motivated not by what happens in any given case but by what happens in the general or typical case in most cases, as things actually are writing critical remarks on works that you have not engaged with does not result in you successfully discharging the role that the art world has entrusted you with there's a widespread convention in the art world that we participate in that critics are expected to have engaged with artworks on a first person basis And that makes sense, given the deontic point of evidential deference to aesthetic advisors, together with the characteristic epistemology of artistic value. The reader has no ground to think that this convention is not enforced, and is thus likely to give the findings of the critic an inappropriate place in her aesthetic considerations. And even if that wasn't the case, even if no one read the paper on that day, for example, the critic would still be open to criticism for having needlessly subverted art world role constraints which are enforced for good reason. This could easily have been avoided had she, for example, signaled explicitly that this piece of criticism was not grounded in her own experience. Whether that frees her blame altogether may depend on whether she occupies a role, whose obligation she's determined to ignore whenever it suits her, or whatever. Okay. So we could provide different types of argument for difficult cases ok, Okay. so I've spent a little time, so what I'm not going to defend is the broad Kantian idea that it's rational to uh, will the essential means to rationally mandated end that principle might seem controversial to you if you don't embrace the Kantian literature that I've out- outlined, so for example if, imagine you were thinking of things this way there's a delimited area of concern for rational demands which sit alongside an area or a private sphere of personal prerogative. So for uh, one day a week, you're allowed to do whatever you want, and then for four days a week, you have to do what you have reason to do. Couldn't it be possible I'm rationally obliged to do X? I'm only able to do so by y and yet um, y failed to be rationally obligatory because it would violate some constraint upon personal space. That could happen if you had that view that and um, freedom meant being let off rational you know, not not having to act for reasons one day a week. So you just kill people and like you know starve thousands of people to death and so on that on that day and then the rest of the day you have to give money to charity and so on. That seems to me an implausible account. Okay. So for example, you might think for example, this is the kind of counterexample you might have in mind. You might think, look, it's mo- morally necessary that I save somebody um, call him Jim. It might be the case that I can only, in fact, save Jim by killing John, and yet might, I might not be morally required to kill John because doing so would be an overly ma- demanding violation of my personal integrity, as kind of Bernard Williams thinks on But on the model of rational agency I'm defending, that's never a genuine option. Okay? Either it will not after all be morally necessary to save Jim, since to do so would involve an unreasonable sacrifice of in my integrity, or else I ought to um, set that my integrity aside and kill John. It will always be the case that there's one of the things on the other. Right? So it's not a, a deontology in the sense of you must never kill, you must never steal. Right? So that's not a kind of cheating. I'm not trying to defend that position in this talk or say that it's preferable to other positions. It's just that my style of deontologist is independently committed to the principle that obligation is transferable from rationally compulsory ends to practically essential means. So it's no cost to me to just agree with that in case of the, the art world. Okay, so now I want to turn to the question of whether the position I've outlined has unacceptable costs. It might seem that such an account fails to emphasise the active power of art world structures. It doesn't such a wholly instrumental means end account? require that we can characterise the end independently of the means by which they're achieved, even if such means are practically essential. Nothing could be further from the truth. In this section, I will elaborate some of the ways in which the art world practices that surround us can actively shape and reshape our duties, our duties. Okay, so it's true that I've argued that regard for aesthetic duty regulates the art world in at least three ways. So first of all, Regard for duty is what makes it rationally obligatory to will the existence of a set of practices geared to preserving and ordering masterworks and other valuable aesthetic objects. Secondly, being motivated by aesthetic duty will lead one to cooperate with art world structures, so it's a motivational role, where these are essential to us having a realistic chance of standing in the right relationship to masterworks. Finally, concern for aesthetic value plays a key role in grounding a sense of regulative sorry, grounding a set of regulative ideals by which the functioning of the art world may be improved and be focused. So it's the ground of rational obligation, it's what motivates you, uh, it's insofar as you're rational, and it's what lays down the norms by which we know how to improve uh, our art world social organisation. So let me say something briefly about each of those in turn with respect to the first point. The idea is not that we're each prescribed to engage in self-conscious, dedictal willings of the art world existence. You're not supposed to kind of say I will the art world. Rather, my claim is that it's ultimately the need to honour masterworks that in part explains why we have conclusive reasons to value X our world structures. Patterns of choice or preference that do not take that conclusive reason into account will thereby open themselves to rational criticism. People discharge the roles and responsibilities allocated by our world institutions. Some of these roles, taxpayer, movie board, do not demand anything particularly out of the ordinary. And it, we saw in the case of Sam that the responsibilities of a well-motivated agent might not be minimal even in these kinds of cases. You might have to give yourself enough of that aesthetic education that you know what, what cuts to um, agree with and what cuts to resist on behalf of political parties. Being a curator or a dealer or an artist will provide agent with different patterns of authority, discretion and temptation. To the extent that you're motivated by a concern for aesthetic duty, and you'll be led to take seriously the obligations and opportunities that your position in the art world affords. So I said that the demand that we respect masterpieces, masterworks, gives a norms of the fixed point by which we can hold the art world to account. In the political realm we're familiar with the idea that the practically achievable may fall woefully short of the ideal. But if bound to the achievable is the only way to make sure that egregious violations of rational autonomy are avoided, we would be rationally obligated to take that course. So no one's suggesting that uh, British democracy is perfect, but it's better than the kind of Hobbesian war of all against all. So if the only way in which we could prevent a war of all against all is to broadly cooperate with the kind of structures that we have until we can improve them, we, what we shouldn't do is st- all simultaneously stop cooperating with any legal structure and then trying to build up from there uh, a better situation on on the Okay. So, and of course you should view that as temporary and of course you shouldn't um, cooperate you shouldn't take that first step of cooperating lightly so for example it requires careful attention to the risk that members of such structures will institute self-serving procedures of repression and control before further improvements can be achieved so you shouldn't be cooperating with something where it's obvious that what's going to happen as soon as you allow a particular party to go into power is that you know, they're going to be politically completely oppressive. You should, those people you should resist. And that's going to, that's going to be a difficult call um, in the political case. We can make a similar set of remarks in the case of the art world. No one would pretend that contemporary art world structures are ideally suited to play the kind of normative role I specified earlier. I'm going to talk in a minute about ways in which they've been criticised. But the very same principles that normatively underwrite the existence of the art world and its claims upon us also mandate that we improve it. Just as in the political case, the goods secured by achievable institutions may give us a conclusive reason to grant a normative authority, so pay your licence fee, pro tanto, but this may be uh, accompanied by an equally conclusive reason to work to reform and perfect them. The exact form that such a set of improvements would take is not something that can be identified at the level of normative generality I'm operating at here. It requires careful application of detailed, empirical, philosophical, legal, and evaluative theories in a way that I'm not trying to engage with. My aim here is simply to stress that there's nothing intrinsically conservative about our relationship to art world institutions on the account defended here. On the contrary, much more might be demanded of us by way of enforcing change than considerations of prudence or utility alone might allow. Okay. So much for the sense in which the art world is an essential means to duty. As noted above, it seems undoubtedly true that the art world also serves to actively shape our aesthetic duties in a number of respects. So here are three. First, it determines local role duties. So if you get hired as a film critic, or you get hired as a curator of a museum, or you get hired as a lecturer in aesthetics, then certain duties come with that. Second, it enables certain forms of preservation, understanding and creation, and not others. For example... In deciding what to buy, store, and exhibit, museums, galleries, and record companies help constitute, and not merely reflect, patterns of tradition and influence. And as Scanlon and others have argued, traditions themselves can give rise to distinctive duties of response, resistance, and transcendence. So some 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 traditions can be goods in themselves, some traditions are things we should get rid of as quickly as possible, and so on. Finally, the art world shapes the demands of duty by constructing a distinctive range of attitudes and worldviews that constitute our rules of aesthetic salience and aesthetic literacy. I contend that properly understood my claims about the significance of the art world are perfectly consistent with each of these points. Let's consider them in time. So I'm going to set aside the role duties. So just take take my word for it that there are, the roles of a philosophy lecturer are different than the roles of a... Um, politician, which are different from the roles of somebody who owns a gallery. So I'm going to turn immediately to the power of the art world to constitute patterns of tradition and influence. As argued above, art world institutions will assign a variety of roles to their members. These roles may include demarcated areas for discretion and individual prerogative. Okay, so they're not completely detailed roles. I think. But the roles of being a curator doesn't tell you what you're supposed to do every hour, every day, you know, in every circumstance it may in a given case be compulsory that a museum director take care to preserve the valuable works which are placed in our care, and to make them available for public appreciation. It need not be so determined what the order, for example, of the exhibition should be. Similarly, although a certain critic may be enjoined to take due epistemic care in writing his monograph on romanticism, he need be in no obligation to include discussion of every pattern of influence in that movement. So there are duties, if you're going to if you're going to be a philosophy lecturer, or you're going to be a critic, then you should. Take, there's going to be. You're not going to be discharging your duties towards art if you don't take due epistemic care to find out um, the kind of kinds that that artwork actually falls under. Similarly, uh, if you, um, there are numerous cases of very badly motivated people taking over art galleries or museums, and for example, send, immediately sending the uh, the works on round the world tours to just to generate money for the. Um, for the museum and then uh, basically using that for fund political campaigns and so on. That's happened in Philadelphia quite recently. Um, but, but, not, but just not doing those kind of things doesn't tell you all that much. Still gives you lots of areas for discretion. This means that art world institutions are practically certain to themselves establish patterns of tradition and influence that need not have existed if different decisions had been made. In choosing to pursue study in one direction rather than another, a critic may help constitute a Yale school or a new criticism. In co-locating the works of one group of artists rather than another, a gallery owner will bring into existence patterns of suggestive juxtaposition that are historically highly contingent. The presence of an art school or its absence, may bring about friendships or rivalries that change the course of artistic history beyond recognition such a course may be in no sense historically or rationally inevitable or explicable in ways that do not mention the happy interaction of chance prerogative and art world institution To take a case of have the point. Are, we, don't, we don't have the Beatles as we have them at the moment with our art schools, managers, clubs in Hamburg producers of record companies pirate radio stations and car accident. Such contingent groupings and traditions are then, are then there as a fact to be developed or rejected, rebelled against or subverted. Masterpieces and other valuable artworks are creatable that would not otherwise be impossible. You can hardly masterfully subvert or parody an established tradition that's never existed. You can't do a parody of a Beatles song if the Beatles don't uh, meet after coming out of art school. Or if you do do that, if you parody a tradition, artwork are in a tradition that never existed, that, in turn, demands a kind of, you know, uh, concept, wholly conceptual or postmodern kind of uh, tradition in art. Work. Uh, so, if you, but then those parodies and those um, or those tributes or whatever they are, in turn, feed into new patterns of obligation, free choice, coincidence, giving shape to an ongoing art history. The activity of art world institutions thus contributes to explaining the occurrence of highly contingent artistic events, movements, styles, viewpoints, and changes. Okay, that active feature of the art world ties in closely to the final feature I wish to discuss. Uh, I've, in, chapter, in an earlier chapter book, I introduced the idea of rules of aesthetic salience. These specify the kinds of aesthetic concepts and normative emphasis that help to make up a given agent's deliberative field. When you decide what to do, you're going to do that on the basis of how things are striking you, and that's going to be governed in part by the kind of concepts you employ. If you, if you have concepts like daughter, friend, colleague, um, and so on, then that's going to shape your uh, moral decision making in ways that, if, that would be different if you didn't have those concepts. For example, if there were no economic institutions where people stood in collegiate relations. Um, and that's going to be highly art world dependent too. There are going to be p- periods where the natural or commonsensical in art are imbued with a certain normative valence and times when it's not. The metaphors of art resulting or springing, resulting from hidden springs may at one point be understood as evoking a quasi-mechanical Hobbesian psychology and later as alluding to the mystery and generative power of subterranean mountain streams. So when, uh, when Wordsworth in the prelude Talks about uh, uh, art coming from hidden springs. He's thinking of the springs as being springs like natural fountains. It's not the that's not the standard interpretation of the 18th century kind of way of understanding about hidden springs. That's more like a kind of things that work in a Okay, so in, he- in helping determine out how art history goes, the art world gives shape to the aesthetic concepts and priorities that fix the rules of seeing. We think in the terms that we do, we value the things that we do, partly because the art world helped determine that art history went this way rather than that. First, the fact that certain valuable artworks were created and not others is only explicable in art world relative terms. This is arguably not merely a reflection of the actual genesis of work, I don't mean this is just an obvious contingent truth about history, but rather it's an a priori truth about the essential nature of works and their properties the connection between post-impressionist and impressionist masterworks isn't just a causal, historical one. It's not that one just comes after the other, it's that one is consciously responding to another. Second, the concepts that we employ in engaging with and seeking to understand the artistic structures um, are not uh, independent of teachers, critics, libraries, presses and so on. That's not just a sociological remark. To properly understand something's status as a piece of popular art, for example, requires grasp of its relationship to certain audiences. There's no reason whatsoever that cinema had to be, or film had to be, a popular uh, medium. But it is a popular medium. Understanding why it is will mention the establishment of cinemas and the, the economics of um, how expensive it is to sh- uh, ship. Uh, big heavy rolls of film across um, America and how many people had to watch a film to make that cost effective Third, it's very plausible that the possession conditions of many concepts will mention art world institutions It's very natural to suppose that full grasp of the concept of the play King Lear will require that we're sensitive to the fact that it is a play for example The, individu- the individuating constraints upon sensitivity are likely to involve mentions of theatres actors, roles, audiences or some such art world institution. On a plausible account of possession conditions, these serve to make concepts the very concepts that they are. So quite apart from the historically contingent narratives of upbringing and education, there are many such constitutive ways in which the art world determines which evaluations and concepts are available to feed into the deliberation of any given agent. You just can't compare something to King Lear if you don't have the concept King Lear, to have the concept clearly, you need to think of it as a play. Thinking of it as a play involves being sensitive to theatrical social organisation. Okay, so the internal structures and conventions of the art world then do not play the role of passive mechanism to an independently specifiable end. What the abstract requirement that we respect masterworks practically demands of a particular person in the world as we find it at such and such a historical moment will constitutively involve essentially art world relative activity. This might include, for example, the determination of which works are at issue, which properties explain the high status, how they're conceptualised and prized, what's demanded of the individual agent, how those demands strike them, what the manifold ways are in which they might fail to live up to them, and so on. Because the art world plays this shaping role, it's not to be expected that we can understand (coughs) or specify the aesthetic duties that we have independently of appeal to its structure. You can't say, look, we have a duty to make sure that all of the extant copies of King Lear don't go out of existence if you don't have the concept King Lear. And specifying the duty will entail mentioning the concept, and the concept won't be able to be specifying which concept that is if you don't mention the artwork structure. Okay, it seems unlikely that any satisfying specification of political or civic duties could succeed that did not draw in large measure on the particular context and saliences that have developed within a particular framework of political institutions. The question of whether we have a duty to obey the law or a right to political protest, for example, draws on implicit mastery of just such historically local context. That doesn't uh, impune an answer to the question of whether, we, whether there is a duty to obey the law um, that appeals to rational consideration. So the fact that you have to mention law in asking, is there a duty to obey the law? You have to use a political concept in asking if you have any political duties, it doesn't show that you can give an answer, given your pension background. Right? Similarly, the fact that we draw on an art world produce resources in conceptualising our aesthetic duties. In no way conflicts with the truth that we have a duty-based obligation to cooperate with art world structures. Okay. So the view I defend is here then is consistent with many of the insights of previous theorists as to the efficacy of the art world. It may indeed play important metasemantic, experiential, and perhaps even ontological roles. I, I, I'm not a proceduralist. I don't think that to be an artwork, artwork is to be applauded by the art world. I think to be a, an artwork is to be something that it's correct to hold the standards of our masterwork um, so I'm kind of normative functionalist but nothing I see here rules out the possibility that every such thing will be presented to a or public or okay so I've got a final section in the paper where basically I kind of complain about various things but maybe I'll just mix that up, let me just say something about what I was going to say, perhaps I could just speak to the handout um, okay so so I'm trying to say the sense in which the artwork plays an active shaping role isn't just <coughs> a kind of useful machine for discharging our duties, it actually shapes what our duties are, what, what we ought to be trying to do. Kantian theories are often accused of being overly optimistic, of ignoring prejudice, unfairness, you know um, euro eurocentric or west centric kind of views and so on being And there's certainly lots of things we would want to say about the art world as we know it. It's elitist, it's decadent in various ways and so on. But um, basically what I want to say is that the kind of theory that I want to defend has the resources to show us where we ought to criticise. Not every type of kind of decline away from tradition is a bad decline away from tradition. There are many declines away from tradition that we ought to applaud. Some kind of declines away from tradition that we shouldn't applaud. How do we decide which are the good ones and which are the bad ones? Well, um, it looks like we want some kind of rational friction so it doesn't just be- become a punch-up between people who think that um, certain types of... You, you know, the decadent art as it was used in Germany in the 30s and the, u- the use of decadent art in the way that we might um, worry about some conceptual art are not um, necessarily the same sense of decadent art, but they show the ways in which we need some some... Norm, some some normative friction. Um, so so basically, the idea is that um, first of all, the kind of theory I'm, I take it as a virtue of the kind of theory I'm defending that it integrates smoothly with other epistemic and kinds of duties to others, duties to yourself, and duties to knowledge, epistemic duties. Um, secondly the fact that there are these aesthetic duties will often uh, push us towards revising significant parts of the art world and, and it will do so by drawing on the social and cognitive theories. It just really does matter whether um, the best way of um, educating people about art in a way that allows them to see and thereby understand and preserve what's important is by paying, um, having a flat rate tax which is compulsory unless you're blind, in which case you get 50% off because you can hear but you can't see. And then using that money to give BBC executives a million pound salaries. That might be the best way. It's an empirical matter whether that's the best way to educate people about art. It might be de facto the best way. I'm not saying it's not, but I'm saying that to find out whether it is, you need to think well, what is it we're trying to preserve? What, what are the kind of things that are important to change and important not to change? Is there anything we could change? Would it be better if we didn't make it a flat rate tax, for example? Would that be workable? What if we gave people who are blind a hundred percent discount, just fifty percent discount? Okay, so that wasn't very clear at the end of but Maybe I could just let me just stop there. If you want to talk about any of the the stuff in the final section, I'm very happy to do some discussion.
0: or do you want to stand?
1: Uh, I, 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 I'm well, very interested.
2: happy
0: to We have a chair. No, no, I'm very happy to stand.
1: No, 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 I'm, I'm happy to stand. So um, I don't
0: understand. today we are implementing a new system. So we're going to start uh, by having clarificatory questions for the first 10 minutes or so, if, if there's any, So if you want Andy to repeat a certain bit of the argument or just... Um, if you wanted to see if uh, your understanding of a certain notion that he used was uh, sort of fits with his understanding. Walter, yeah, thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so I have a question. Um, so, as you talked about, I, I saw that to account for this this need for historical contingencies say <laughs> I, I like how you I thought well he has to supplement his Kantian framework with maybe. A human account of
1: art criticism or a set of judgment that is uh, not so much grounded in what Kant takes the judgment set of judgments, some something kind of universal cognitive. Okay, okay. Yeah. So sorry, I should have said that something when I'm saying Kantian, I don't mean the third critique. Okay. So by but I do think it's Kantian in the sense that I think it's coming out the uh, groundwork, the second critique, and the other right. Technical, right. So so it's Kantian. Yeah. So so I don't think it's it's not it's not a uh, it's not pretty always um, interested in the judgment of pure taste.
0: Okay, yes. So, so uh, because then later on you talked about these rules of salience and how, uh, say, a historically developing society offers the concepts with which we assess works of art to be good masterpieces. That's right, and, yeah. So,
1: and, and my question is where does aesthetic judgment come in here, or is there no. Uh, Yep. so there will be, be a range of different types of aesthetic judgement that, that somebody might make the way that I understand the, the way that I understand can, so let's think about the duties to other people practical duties the way I think of the so let me say this first of all so let me give you a little bit of the shape for the three chapters before some people sometimes think that look there's moral value, aesthetic value and epistemic value and three different types of value that's not the way I'm thinking about it it's not the way really any Kantian should think about it. What I'm thinking, the way I'm thinking about it is there are at the kind of fundamental level there's um, two types of rationality. Maybe one reduces to another but at least two types. There's theoretical rationality that aims at knowledge. There's practical rationality that aims at kind of permissible action. Then there's on the basis of those two fundamental types of normative constraint there's the derivation of different types of duties. The duty to oneself, there's duties to uh, political duties, duty to vote, maybe, in certain circumstances, um, duties to art, uh, derived epistemic duties. So the kind of duties that you'll have qua scientists will not, as it were, be stated by the fundamental uh, kind, of, kind of theoretical reason, but it'll be derived in a very historically contingent way. Okay, so I'm thinking of the artistic duties being a little bit like the political duties, we do have maybe a duty to, to vote or to protest under certain circumstances. Um, that duty is not itself mentioned in the account of what practical reason is or what pure reason is, but it can be derived from that through quite a long process of reasoning in some sense. Though, however, the way that I'm thinking of the, the kind of Kantian framework is that you can't. no Kantian can fail to be a kind of highly... Historicist, uh, Particularist, contingentist Embeddedness Because what you need to do Think about the way that the The, the kind of um, The groundwork model works The idea is look, what we're evaluating for permissibility Are maxims And maxims are very very detailed Accounts of what you're trying to do Why you're trying to do it Who's doing it, who will be affected by it And, and by which particular way You're trying to achieve that goal You're just not going to. Rationality can't even get to work unless you have a very already have a very rich group of kind of normatively laden concepts like daughter, you know, poor person, food, harm, heart, pain. All of those kind of things are going to have to be in uh, before you ask yourself, Am I permissible to? I hurt my daughter in these circumstances? Am I permissible to hurt my, is it permissible to hurt my daughter when it's the only way to save her life and she's consented? Right. That kind of question is going to be quite different than the case, other types of cases. So, But in order to ask those questions you're going to have to have very, very detailed set of concepts, and many of those concepts will themselves have an armative valence. I'm thinking of just the same kind of thing in the aesthetic case. So, so the way that you view things um, is structured through aesthetic uh, context So you, it, you know, when you're thinking of Picasso, you're thinking of it as a Picasso. And that uh, doesn't that's it's not wholly descriptive, of course, as at the castle, but it also we're brought in a culture where Picasso has a certain status and that will enter into your consideration. Where uh, where the kind of rational norms come in will um I, come with respect to how the fact that it's Picasso ought to affect what we do or what we think. So if it turned out that, for example, nobody was ever looking at or thinking about or creating or taking steps to preserve anything but the Picassos, then that would be a violation of aesthetic duty, on my account, if you could do those kinds of things. So the norm will come out by thinking, is what we're doing here right? so get a very detailed description of how we're planning to interact with the works in a way that's conceptually very thick and then ask um, is this um, the kind of thing that we ought to be doing given the value of these kind of rational achievements That's the way I'm thinking about it. so in that sense that's where normative judgement comes in but, take, but you might be thinking of a different type of judgement the judgement that this type of work is important and this type of work is, is not important That, I'm thinking, is not to be done by a philosophical theory. I'm thinking that any more than, the way I'm thinking about it is, duties to we will have certain duties to part of your epistemic duties will ultimately kind of give rise to or underline the duties we have to science as a scientist, as a taxpayer and so on. Um, That doesn't mean that your theory of epistemic duty ought to tell you uh, what scientific theories to accept and reject, right? If, you, if your philosophical theory is telling you that string theory is too complicated to be accepted, that's a really bad mark of the philosophical theory. It shouldn't be telling you that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, if the only reason that people are string theorists is that some very powerful string theorists are uh, taking undue advantage of their privileged position to get their graduate students into um, all the Ivy League schools and all of the the research institutions, and then not granting them any fun Then you have to say, well, just a minute. I mean, it's like that's the kind of thing where you can appeal to these epistemic norms. You say, look, science should be about getting knowledge. It shouldn't be about having a self-serving community of just keeping each other a comfortable jobs. So it's not that, the, in my view, the role of judgment is for the for the critics, rather than for the. Philosophers at this level of the ideal, just like the judgment of which is the, of what kind of, you know, whether we know that quantum electrodynamics is true is down to the physicists. But um, that kind of deference is tempered by it's not just whatever the physicists say that goes, right? Not just the fact that you are a physicist at Harvard that gives you epistemic authority, it's that you are taking part in a communal. Uh, Endeavour which can be held to these much more fundamental standards. That's what I'm thinking about.
0: Any more
3: questions? I was wondering what do you mean by uh, history, by art history, because I guess you are not in the historicist framework, but art history is worked out in the historicist framework, and we, I'm not sure we have another framework to... Deal with history. So my question would be that: um, How many history do we have, and how it relates to cultures, and what do we mean by it? So you understand the problem is history means something in the historicist framework, but we don't think that the historicist framework is something which we should accept. And then, what else art history can mean?
1: The way I'm thinking about it is. Um, um, there's, a, there's an explanation of why we uh, believe the things that we do about art why we act the way that we do as we stand in the many different relationships we do to art and why um, and that's partly a function of how things went in the past um, the way I'm thinking about it is that we don't construct the past, that's not, it's not that past is um, something that we make up in the same way that a novelist can make up a novel. It's not something that we're just invited to imagine. There are facts about the past. Um, and Historians will be open to criticism if they're indifferent to what the facts were. It might be fine for them to use all kinds of narrative devices and so on as long as those are tempered or regulated by what the facts are. But it will be important that those facts are kind of Perspective. That doesn't mean I think that there's a kind of vocabulary for talking about the past that is kind of ahistorical, that we could reach a kind of vocabulary that wasn't itself shaped by history. I don't think that for the reasons that I've given here. But what I want to say is we, what we need to do is kind of like um, describe how things were in the language that we have, which is the only language that we can speak, to change that language insofar as it. Uh, is not a language which is well suited for describing how things were various post-colonial or sexist or other kinds of objectionable um, presuppositions built into it for example and those languages and theories ought to be changed. What tells you how it ought to change, the direction the change ought to occur in, what makes um, that a progressive direction are the kind of epistemic norms that govern theoretical reason tell you that look You ought to seek knowledge about the past. And you're not seeking knowledge about the past if you allow kind of uh, one group of people to impose evidently constructed and self-serving view of the past in order to let their own current political ends be achieved more smoothly. That would be my view. So I'm thinking that the past is real. Uh, We have to use our current theories to describe it as best we can. Um... That's just true in the history of art as that history of anywhere else. Um, some of those uh, concepts and so on will be objectionable and ought not to be employed. Um, uh, in trying to decide which ones to hold on to and which ones to give up or how to modify the ones we have, we have to think seriously about um, where those concepts came from and what kind of normative job they're doing for us given what we ought to be doing. That's what I'm thinking about. It. So uh, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I hope it um, yeah.
3: yeah, I have a follow-up, on that is also. It. But it's a real question, so you can clarify that. So my question is uh, really based on that because, as far as I see, your theory is kind of something about uh, hundred years or maximum hundred something years behind, but not more. So what I would want to ask you is who you think that your theory can be applied for. I don't know, BC 3000, 2000, I think it's just not. So I would think that your theory has a kind of 100, 150, 200 years back, but after what you say, it's kind of hardly sayable because your problems which you discuss, it just doesn't appear. In Egypt, you know, they, they try to do what is in the upper. Um, so the artist was kind of making a copy of the upper world, so, if I try to understand what you see in Egypt, I am not sure we can use that theory and if you even if you just go to somewhere else, for example, the Orthodox religion, where they have the orthodox religion and they kiss the pictures, which you would say that is not too good to kiss because it destroys it then um, also. You understand? Yeah. So it will so, become so some think, yeah, conflict because yeah. the questions which you raise are questions for us here and some 50 years around before. And then um, I don't see it's about uh, the art history. Um.
1: Okay, so, yeah. So like I said, so just like I don't think the, the conservative <coughs> theory that I'm defending isn't a, a, a theory which... Aims to give you kind of exceptionalist generalisation: to never hurt people, never kill people, never uh, destroy any artwork. I, I don't believe that's not any deontological picture I recognise. Certainly not the aim of the kind of theory that I think, I think it may be fine to kill people in certain circumstances. Um, it may be absolutely no problem at all in inflicting pain on your children in the various circumstances. <coughs> You do it all the time when we're inoculating them against diseases and so on. Might be absolutely, fu- you know. I mean, the idea of that something was going wrong with the happenings because they were making works and then destroying them and filming the destruction of some works in order to create another work, or that they erased the Dukunings shouldn't have been erased because it involved the destruction of one of the Dukunings. Mm. I mean, that's that's nothing that I I don't see anything in here that commits me to saying that that's not absolutely fine. In fact, I do think it's absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. my explanation of why it's absolutely fine why it wouldn't be absolutely fine if we just cut off for example all public funding from the arts and all our education in schools actually prohibited to punish people if they educated their children about the arts that kind of thing wouldn't be fine why? because there's something about the arts which is worth preserving I think you can say that there's something about it worth preserving without being committed to the kind of idea that um, uh, you know each and every artwork, or each and every masterwork, ought to be preserved under all circumstances. That's plainly absurd.
0: I thought her question was going in a slightly different way. So I thought it's that um, So you you have this notion of an aesthetic duty. And uh, I think you're pushing the idea that in certain different cultures, which were more foreign, perhaps the conception of aesthetic duty um, is remarkably different, such that uh, there is a question which arises whether you can run this sort of counter
3: Exactly, because, for example, in the Bible there is a story when they steal one tribe, steal the sculpture from the other tribe. The interesting thing is the reason why they steal the capture, because the captures are the gods. So when you steal the capture, Put into your pantalon, where is the other captures, you put the gods into your cu- pantalon and put the gods under your gods. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of synthetic. And the reason why um, um, the Heber hasn't a visible god, because you couldn't steal, so it's very funny things. Yeah. But then when you have the duties, it will be very hard to understand that. You understand? So yeah. it's, it's kind of, it's such deeply culture dependent that um, the duties can mean just extremely many things. So in Egypt, the duties would mean that you must dream, and in your dream, you must dream the culture, yeah. because the dream is related to the upper world where you want to copy everything, and that is why they build the whole city. So
1: yeah, th- I, 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 <laughs> I want the duties to be very, very... Culture-dependent and very dependent on lots of contingent features of human life, because that's what I think the duties are like. So, for example, um, many people don't have children. Some people do have children. People who have children have some duties to look after those children in certain circumstances, not at any cost. Not you're not allowed to um, kind of murder other people and take their stuff, come home, and then justify it by saying, "Well, it's my child. I love mm-hmm. my child." But some duties um, the, this relationship that you stand in to your child gives you duties that other people don't have to that particular child, gives you duties as a mother for example, or as a father um, which other people don't have and so that's relative to the individual and similarly, it will be true that um, uh, in terms of circumstances, men might have duties which are very different than women's duties so for example, if I'm walking behind a woman late at night, and I may have a duty to cross the road, so I'm not walking think, ten, 10 feet behind her. And uh, similarly, if I belong to one culture, a very rich culture, for example, or a modern culture, that may give me certain duties that other cultures just yeah,
3: don't have. I, I get that. Just uh, my question is whether it's possible that in the Hebrew culture or in Phoenicia and such and in Egypt, there wasn't the concept of artwork, so they couldn't have duties toward artwork. They have duties yeah. toward the God, they have duties toward, toward something, so it's kind of it's not exactly the same
1: so the way I'm thinking about it is from my point of view I mean, this is something, it's a very sensible question because it's something that I deal with earlier and I didn't have a chance in the book and I didn't have a chance to present properly I think it's perfectly conceivable that there could be um, a a kind of species, intelligent species elsewhere in the universe that are kind of like orangutans are in our they, they don't stand in close familial or friendship relations self-sufficient, they find themselves in an environment where they can see to their needs, but I can imagine those um, were not like animals, if if there are any kinds like animals, but were rather rational creatures like us, but they were in conditions of plenty, they didn't stand in family relationships that were reason given, they didn't see any reason once the child was able to take care of themselves, which happens quite quickly to stay with that child or to Um, have ongoing obligations to that child and they didn't feel lonely, they didn't need friendship relations, so in that sense duties to your friends, duties to your family, the kind that we have is a very very specific and contingent thing I'm not saying that every rational creature has to have a duty to make artworks, in fact I agree with you that for example that creature wouldn't have any duty Um, creatures that were that didn't have the concept of artworks or um, uh, could, we're incapable of taking any pleasure in art don't have duties towards artworks themselves for example, they don't have the kind of duties that involve creating artworks or thinking of things as artworks or anything like that and they don't have duties uh, towards friendship, but we are not like that we are the kind of creatures that can, you, and maybe this is historically contingent as well as a, a contingent fact about our species we are capable of our type of rational achievement includes the production of great works of art. So just like um, we're the kind of creatures that need friends, we're the kind of creatures that are quite dependent on our parents or on other adults until we grow until five years old, but it didn't have to be like that. In, 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 in kind of imaginary circumstances where everybody came into the world fully uh, adult, we just wouldn't have the kind of duties towards children it's not that they should be kind of in, this, in the labs trying to make some children so that they can perform their duties towards children we just don't have those duties so it's, so it's supposed to be very contingent and local, I want to agree with everything you yeah. say I think it's absolutely mm-hmm. right, it's not supposed to be universal or to apply to any conceivable rational agent it's just supposed to uh, so there's two kind of aspects for, kind of, for creatures like us on the one hand, we're rational creatures but so on uh, the other uh, and we're human rational creatures. So, because we're human rational creatures, we'll have uh, distinctive duties which needn't be um, that not every rational creature, even by Kant's light, ought to uh, fulfill. Kant believes in God, he thinks that God is rational, but he doesn't think that God has a duty to plan for his future, to set goods aside for his future, to improve himself, just in case the future takes an unexpected turn. But he does think that we have a duty. To plan to take due care about our future and to develop our talents, just in case the future takes an unexpected turn. That's because we're the kind of creatures that are finite, vulnerable, dependent on others, extending time. And God isn't. God, God can't be harmed. So there's no duty on him to kind of like plan for his pension. But but we contribute to the pensions of others. But we do have that duty. Thanks.
4: Um, I, I had a similar concern actually because I was reading it's a thoroughly modernist critique for modernism and by modernism, but that's sort nothing. Of but um, I kind of wondered if you'd say something about um, the structure of the art world, because um, in terms of duty, a little bit more. Because you, I think you were saying that um, it's good that we should have a duty to the art world, and uh, the art world itself is a form of kind of manifest duty in, in its own production. And I was just thinking as you were speaking about the kind of structure of that duty and what actually constitutes that. Um, when you were talking about Kant, I couldn't help but think of Foucault's uh, What is Enlightenment and the kind of normativity of critique that is talked about um, as a kind of inheritance or legacy of the Enlightenment. Um, you know, I think that this normativity of critique has a particular structure in the art world and it has, through Dirty, And continuing now in in whatever we want to call it, um, post-modernity, post structuralist critiques, what have you, and that's often to uh, seen as a duty to um, destabilise in the kind of basic essential principles of democracy that one enjoys and agrees to disagree. And the duty to disagree seems paramount to our practice to destabilise, destruct, deconstruct, and the rest of it. So. That, to me, um, and it's a pretty obvious thing to say, falls exactly in line and coalesces with neoliberalist politics, which also champion individual um, subjectivity, the principles of critique, and all the rest of the kind of the shared principles across those modernist kind of moves. So, this kind of um, shared space of critique and neoliberal politics, for me therefore makes me wonder about duty the structure of duty that you're describing because it seems to me that what it risks is that you're basically saying we have a duty to neoliberalism um that's really worrying um and therefore it sounds conservative so i'm kind of interested in art practice as like when you talk about the significance of the art world They say well significance of the art world for artworks to to think about um, materialist, realist critiques that try and um, move past their coalescence with neoliberal agendas so I'm just wondering how this form of duty that you're describing seems to coalesce with neoliberalism and therefore results in our normativity within that structure and incapable of transcending it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question and and as you can see I think by the paper that you know, it's a concern that I am, uh, you know, open to, and that I, would, I wouldn't I would endorse this kind of position if I thought that it um, committed you to just morally or politically obnoxious attitudes or views on the defense of things that shouldn't be defended as respect to political organizations. So it is something that I'm sensitive to. My own view is that... Um, that will surprise you to I'm not committed <laughs> to that uh, I don't think that um, so for example there are many things you might mean by neoliberal politics you might mean liberal economic relations where there are very few constraints on how uh, markets can operate, you might mean um, monopolistic capitalism where there are very few constraints on how um, very very rich individuals and companies can interact with people. You might mean liberal in the sense that um, people's there's a certain type of freedom to act that people have which is worthwhile and ought to be preserved and, and not impugned by the material and cultural condition in which they grew up. And I suppose it's only the last of those that I would want to see this as again, a kind of liberal project that there's something worthwhile That's, that's um,
4: liberalism is isn't it? It's
1: not Okay, so, I mean, if I'm not, again I think it, it depends on how exactly you understand what the good kind of freedom is what the bad kind of freedom is and so on but I, my, my, my view would be that when we actually got down to there are many types of subversion um, which are not good in themselves. There are other kinds of subversion which are good and so we ought to um, take care of them. So for example imagine that um, there's a group of people um, who for one reason or another are disadvantaged or oppressed within the society and all of their attempts to get themselves out of that situation are subverted by violent assault. Imagine that you know, there's a group of slaves who are trying to organise themselves and educate themselves and argue for justice, but at any time that they try to do that, people put on white hoods and go and break up those organisations or prevent those people from being in a position to free themselves. My own view would be that that's a bad thing and that that kind of subversion of um, political activities is a bad kind of subversion. There's other kinds of subversion, subversion, for example, of certain types of totalitarian or oppressive governments or social arrangements. Which is a good thing. But in order to tell the difference between subverting the efforts of the um, of people who are trying to improve permissively trying to improve their situation, and subverting the uh, the efforts of people who um, are trying to do things that they shouldn't be doing, you need some normative principle. I saw that BP, for example, had just given huge amounts of money to the the Tea Party. Uh, tea Party candidates in the United States you might think that seems to me is perfectly aptly described as a form of subversion you're subverting um, democratic politics by uh, interfering with it for your own benefit as a, as a company that's not the kind of subversion that I would applaud or other, other kinds of subversion I would applaud in telling the difference between the type that you ought to be applauding and the type that you shouldn't be applauding I'm going to appeal to the kind of and principles I said earlier Yeah. Um, this is really
5: a very question. Although I should have asked that before. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, I was wondering what's the source of the uh, that fundamental duty of art uh, that you that you mentioned? Because traditionally, theories that appeal to uh, the idea of the art world uh, do so because they want to explain the value of art, right? I mean, the dialectic is basically, well, you know, art doesn't have a particular function, a particular, say, practical function, that if we can value art because of that function, and you know, all works of art don't share the same properties, so, you know, the value of art can't be there. So we have to appeal to some other notion that would explain why art is valuable. So we go, I mean, art, I mean, you know, so the art world is uh, explains what, how, you know, art, in, in another, it's a kind of a context that gives value uh, to art. So, but, so, the art seems to be the source of value of, of art in that particular sense. But then it seems that uh, when you have when your your idea that we have the duty to will the existence of the art world because it is the institution that will secure the conditions for the development of you know artistic practices, it seems to presuppose um, that art is valuable, right? And and so but it seems that the source of that value should be different from the source of the value of artistic word, words, so to say, because...
1: In one sense different, in another sense not different. All right. I, agree, I agree with you So
5: Because otherwise it would be kind of circular, right? I mean, you... you,
1: I, think, you I think you're right. I think that the, the, there has to be a source of normative authority right. by which we can explain why we ought to cooperate set-up world structures and improve other ones or reject other ones. Um, that source of normative authority ought to be characterised in, in, in some terms, and then there ought to be something that links the source of normative authority with the kind of how more detailed forms of social organisation. The analogies that I try to uh, draw in here are analogies between, for example, the. So, first of all, one way of thinking about it is this might be helpful too. Just to kind of get the idea of the shape of the position. I'm thinking that for something to be valuable, valuable as a final end, is for there to be kind of conclusive reason for us to value it. Or well, that's, in some sense, those two, you can approach it from two different ways. And then I'm trying to ask what kind of things, uh, what kind of, how, how does something have to behave for it to play the role of a reason? And then for art to be valuable will be formed and fight for something is an artwork of a certain kind or masterwork in my, in my case will we'll give us a certain type of conclusive reason to value it in certain circumstances. So think about the general shape of the think about the general shape of the kind of Kantian idea. The idea is that there are norms of rational agency that precede Uh, agency. That is, you can't explain what it is to be an agent without thinking that an agent is the kind of thing that has mental states, for example, that are organised in a particular way. Explaining what it is for them to be organised in that way will involve mention of rational norms. So for Frege, for example, to have thoughts is to be related to uh, mental representations of a particular kind. Those mental representations for again, thoughts with a capital T so the thought that P will be the same as the thought of Q roughly if P and Q have the same conditions of rational acceptance and rejection. So in saying what it is to be a thought, you have to mention rationality to be a thinker is to think thoughts So, in that sense you have to once you're in the game of talking about thinkers at all, you're already talking about something with a rational laundry and that's one we're thinking about can't I read it? We can distinguish two aspects or maybe two dimensions of those norms, one aimed uh, out into the world, the way we act upon the world, one aimed respect to our representation of the world. I'm going to say there are epistemic norms that aim at knowledge, okay. that practical norms that aim at permissible action, and those will kind of come from the, the more general theory. Those norms apply to all rational agents whatsoever ones that we know about, ones that we can imagine, ones in distant planets, ones in distant mm-hmm. worlds. But we live a particular kind of life We're not just any old type of rational agent We're the human rational agent What's it like to be a human rational agent? Well it includes for example Being lonely Needing friendship relations um, Being stable enough And communal enough To be able to get social epistemic relations To be able to go And uh, institute scientific Forms of inquiry for example which maybe the single kind of individual rational agents, they might inquire into things but it would be a scientific inquiries, we might understand that they didn't have forms of record experimentation and so on uh, we have finite numbers of good and, work, and we have uh, pernicious motivations and so we need various forms of political organisation communal organisation to stop it there might be no straightforward explanation derivation of how duties to your friends? Your friend's in trouble, you want to stay in and watch TV, but she's in desperate trouble, what should you do? The canteen's going to want to say, look, you ought to go and help her. Right? That's part of what being a friend is, standing in that relation. Um, why shouldn't the lab assistant just be forging the results all the time? Right? And then there'll be an explanation of why the duty of a kind of communal scientific endeavour. That's going to relate in a really, really complicated way to the value of knowledge. Right? You have the value of knowledge at the absolute foundational level, that's exerting the normative authority that will ultimately govern why you shouldn't be uh, fabricating your results or accepting money from drug companies to say that things are okay when they're not okay or whatever it is. Right? But that's a very, very detailed story. No one thinks that you get from knowledge to science and very straightforward way. No one thinks that you get from norms of rational agency to friendship. Yeah very straightforward quality. No one thinks that you get from the normal, the the, the practical and epistemic norms to the duties to obey the law in a very straightforward way. And there may be no um, as it were wholly general stories to be told. It may just be a claim that there any more than we, I could give you an account of I really could give you an account of this in terms of quarks or, or kind of fields. I, I just can't actually tell you how the table is made up of it. Nevertheless, I do think it's made up of a thing. If you fix the, fact, the facts about the quarks in the fields, you fix the facts about the table, you fix the facts about the normative fundamentals, you fix the facts about science, what, what scientists ought to do, how people ought to act toward their friends, and also how we ought to interact with our bodies. So that's part of it. More locally, to give you an idea of how I'm thinking about it, there's multiple groups up. So you have one duty. One set of duties comes from the obligation to improve your talents. So can't tell look creatures like us that can't tell which way the future's gonna go have an obligation to uh, develop our talents because otherwise you might find yourself in a situ- you might foreseeably find yourself in a situation where um, you're called upon to, to do something, but you can't do it. So if you don't keep yourself minimally fit, then it might be the case that you can't stop the mugging or you can't stop the rape or whatever it is because you're too physically kind of weak or whatever. So you ought to take reasonable steps in so far as it's kind of um, you know uh, fits with your other obligations. If you don't put anything towards your pension, if you don't take any steps towards securing your future, then you might be uh, relying too much on the beneficence of others, demanding too much from other people in a way that's going to make it hard for them to the you take. So if you, because they'll be resentful towards you because you don't take any reasonable steps to kind of do what you could have done and so if you really care about people doing what they ought to do then you ought to kind of take reasonable steps so, so some of it will come from perfecting yourself and there's another source which is that I don't think I think that um, basically there's an argument that says something like rational agents ought to care about um Rational agency going well. Masterworks are an instance of our kind of rational agency going well. They're tremendous rational achievement. Therefore, rational agents ought to care about masterworks if they're, if they're like us. That, I take, is neutral between lots of aesthetic normative theories. Greg Curry thinks that um, you know, very valuable artistic works are, are achievements. David Davis thinks they're achievements. But, they, but they're not deontologists. So I think that's something that the deontologists can help themselves to insert types of normative conversations with people who are not themselves antecedently sympathetic to deontology. Very little time and many questions. So a short short answer. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, My question was to do with this uh, neutrality. I was wondering about the relationship between the descriptive and prescriptive in the context of norms and duties, because I was thinking uh, when you talk about the poor person and the museum, Uh, already describing somebody as a poor person and then thinking about duties seems to me to accept the existence of poor people rather than challenge it. And from within the um, the institutions of the artwork, I would say um, the injunction or the duty uh, would be, at least since the avant God, to um, contest them. So I was thinking in terms of preservation, you say that um, art critics are kind of in agreement on the need to preserve masterworks even if they disagree about the content of them but I was thinking about somebody like Malevich who proposed that our, uh, masterworks need to be burned in order to allow for practice to exist in the present day because um, it's only once we burn all the Rubenses that we can make a Rubens again so yeah, I didn't say Rubens's are master. No, no, I'm not saying Rubens's but I'm saying any masterwork as long as it's there you can't repeat it because you know, it's already yeah. been done yeah. So, if you're an avant-garde artist, your commitment, your duty is to burn them, and maybe display yeah. the amazing little
1: urn. Yeah. That's right. There have been many people with views that said that just by burning some set of things, things will go better. Sometimes it's people we burn. Sometimes it's artworks we burn. <laughs> but just often, some of those people are right. Maybe it is better if some people we burn. Some of those people are maybe some of those people are wrong in certain circumstances, Some types of rejections of the past are positive, some types of rejections of norms subversions of norms are good, some are bad, I guess we need to tell the difference between those kind of those two kinds of cases. I agree with you that thinking of someone as poor uh, is thinking of them under a certain type of thick normative concept. And, um, you suggested that the position was committed to thereby accepting or endorsing those range of concepts so actually it's the opposite. The position's committed to Um, rejecting those of our concepts that are open to normative criticism. But what we can do is reject all our concepts at once and then think that we'll be in a position to engage with normative criticism. In order to engage with a process of criticism at all, we have to think that's going to require some concepts so we can't reject all of the concepts that we've inherited at once. It has to be a process of rejection and improvement. So it's not endorsing it to say or accepting it to say that um, some people do strike us as poor and some people don't. Or if they don't strike you as poor, that may be a good thing. Some people are such that some people strike them as poor, and for those kind of people it will be well. I, I suppose I just meant it in terms of a, an economic difference just, just to
2: clarify, I don't mean the rejection of particular of like A. Rubens. I mean, from a leverage, the idea was to destroy everything. Similarly, yeah, for no, I, German, we need to go beyond music to reimagine what music yeah. can be. So it's not about developing a new genre along with some kind of progressive uh, lineage. What if we need to destroy everything in order to even begin to think about what art can be? Because as long as we have these ideas of what art is, they limit us.
1: Um, uh, if, If it were really the case that the only way to achieve works that weren't open to certain types of criticism was to destroy all the works that had been made, I would be in favour of that. It's just that claim that I'm disputed, or at least I haven't seen any evidence for art from somebody self-stylising by seeing something deliberately provocative and shocking to, shop, you know, to make the you know, discuss the worthwhile as That wouldn't
4: necessarily, I, I don't know what you're saying, but that wouldn't necessarily produce artworks for the sake of them not being able to critique, but surely to recondition of our very understanding what critique is and can be
1: some kind of reconditioning of our understandings are good but
4: radically um,
1: some radical ones are good and some are not and we need some way of telling what good ones are we could recondition people's understanding by systematically um, brainwashing them in high school in order to be more racist than they actually are that kind of reconditioning I'm not in favour of if it's the kind of reconditioning that will allow genuinely good works to be produced Then I might be in favour of it, but then we need some explanation of what the generally good works are. To
4: create transcendental yardsticks, you're suggesting requires um, an understanding of where your ethics are based. That's right, and that's kind of what I was asking you before.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so, (laughs) if you're asking me if I'm a sport of the Tea Party, I'm not. (laughs) If you're asking me, do do I think that we create transcendental yardsticks? I don't. But you're asking me, do I think there are any? Norms, such that we there are some things which we shouldn't do and some things which we should do. In the most abstract term, then I do think that so that's where my that's my Okay,
0: let's move on, Nick. I kind of, I wondered if it was possible that there was uh, a sense in which the art world is kind of self defeating. Right, so maybe it's sort of uh, practically indispensable to... Allowing people to appreciate masterworks and to praise art properly and all sorts of good things. But maybe sort of the very existence of an art world sort of undermines people's ability to do those things as well because people want to do what the people who may have art do, to form, I they want to form opinions that match theirs because they want to fit in and they want to be seen to be knowledgeable.
1: Yeah. It kind of seems like there's a tension between the thing existing and given the sorts of beings that we are. Yeah. I mean, Maybe it, there it shouldn't be such a thing. Because it's a wholly contingent matter. it turns out that any form of social or communal organisation is, is worse than the war of all against the all, then you shouldn't endorse it. The Kantian's making a particular empirical claim about good means to an end. It's like, less people get their rights infringed if we have some minimal form of state maybe one that ought to be changed radically. Similarly, if there was no form of social organisation that was any better than random uh, at giving art what is due, then I would agree, it's a claim about means to end, and so if that could be demonstrated, then you shouldn't participate in the art work. I just think empirically that's false. I just think evidence of false. Yeah. Hey, so I was wondering um, if you could clarify the claim
0: that there's need the art in order to one or kind of fix or
1: determine aesthetic concepts, so that seems right for some of the concepts you were talking about, so like the concept of play, or something in like the castle
0: correct? Right? But I can kind of imagine some people saying, well, these aren't essentially the interesting aesthetic um, concepts that we want to think about. So specifically, when you're talking about aesthetic concepts, it's all, you know, the ugly, beautiful, the dainty, the dumpty, the and movements and, stuff, and things like that. So I'm wondering how much purchase your theory and really gives us on, on determining those concepts. It looks like, on the face of it, at least you wouldn't need an author to determine those concepts because you could do it on the basis of nature evidence. Yeah. So. So I'm wondering about the scope of that. I'm interested, yeah. it'd, be it'd be interesting to know about the. Cou-
1: I mean, if you think about the way Sibley actually came up with that list, mm-hmm. he went to the Bodleian and actually, is that right? Was it Cambridge or Oxford? Anyway, mm-hmm. he went to the library and he took out the Oxford English Dictionary and he went through and, like, basically spent a year and a half compiling all the thick aesthetic concepts that you can find. Now, that seems to me that's not independent of a set of institutions, philosopher, dictionary, university library, spare time, uh, (laughs) publication, (laughs) that are wholly social and relevant to the job of philosopher philosopher of art. And so um, the fact that we think of that as a unified group is... You know, it didn't mention for example how many words in, in Ulster dialect turned up in that list or in Scots dialect was the broader or the cragit. No, they weren't on that list. It was a certain conception of what the important thick things are. Could you acquire those concepts just by reading the Ulster English? Can you even really acquire the concept of the dainty or the dumping just independently of the social structures that the that seems to me, seems to me not. Certainly not the fragile, um, as any said. Just often in those cases, I, I think that's not the case. If it were, then um, it would still be the case that um, all, all I needed was the claim that um, the art world doesn't just, it's not just that we have these duties, and then the art world is just a machine for getting to them. What duties you have are is actually fixed by that one. So it will still be the case that um, um, the duties of a philosopher of art, like simply is different from the duties of a gallery or a movie mogul. And that's all I mean. okay. um, and, uh, I've just
0: got two simple questions. One is the, the general style of argument you're giving, could I generalise it for different kinds of domains? So you talked about uh, epistemic duties, um, moral duties, aesthetic duties, and so on. But um, maybe it, so. Maybe that gives you three types of pegs. But um, how about we, we have other kinds of practices, say, the philosophy world. Now, could I just uh, sort of slightly jig your arguments around and, and get this the sort of philosophy world out of this?
1: Um, so my my view is that. Um, uh, so the, 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 there's a range of different cases. First of all, I was rejecting the idea that we should think of the moral and the epistemic. As I talked about duties to friends, duties to siblings, duties to self, duties to others. Your duties to yourself will include getting an education of a certain kind so that you can defend yourself, you know, being minimally uh, able to pursue those projects and so on. That would be a very complex blend of kind of activities. One, that's the moral one and that's the epistemic one. Um, with respect to the philosophy world, I think that even though the ultimate kind of normative authority comes from normative, fairly general norms of reason, I do think it's a virtue of certain types of philosophical explanation that they um, employ concepts which are comparatively natural, fundamental, in the sense that they play, uh, they can be appealed to in a wide variety of different explanations. So take the concept of knowledge, uh, you know, I'm um, you know, signed up to the Wilmsham Project, so I think that you know, knowledge helps you explain what belief is, what assertion is, what evidence is. A single concept can kind of normative concept, and by, by my lights, because it's what we ought to be aiming at in theoretical agency, um, plays an explanatory role across a range of different domains. And I want to say that um, the, the, the concept of a masterwork is, is a little bit like that, because it's explain a wide range of different types of activity by a culture. So for example I think you can explain what an aesthetic property is, what an artwork is um, what, what an art world is or what an art world for um, and, and so on. I want to have that as playing the kind of role in um, aesthetic theory as knowledge does, on a kind of Williamsonian epistemic theory. And so um, if it were the case that there was a concept like that in philosophy, um, with which we could explain many different things of that kind, maybe philosophy itself, or philosophical inquiry, or something. Actually, I just don't really think that. I think that the concepts philosophy, you know, philosophy is uh, an interesting kind of activity because it's will give rise to a distinctive type of knowledge. Maybe it helps us get uh, systematic ways of thinking about um, what kind of things we ought to be doing, or what's permissible to do, or obligatory to do, and so on. But like, I don't really think of it as containing a domain of that concepts that play the kind of explanatory role um, where that's taken seriously as an explanatory role to, to make those concepts to make us think that part of the kind of sparse explanatory structure of the world we've like mentioned distinctively philosophical and similarly for domains like sport. sometimes people say to me well, this is absurd because you know, then you would have duties to, to sport, duties to sport football uh, it's actually not clear to me that you know human life Maybe certain forms of human life, you know, physical you know, it's often philosophers are putting down the kind of physical activity is absurd that you would think that you know there could be any norms governing it, you know. I'm kinda neutral about that, but I don't think it's depends whether you think there's significant achievement of rational agency. If if, if if you know, imagine we're going on a spaceship Earth and we're trying to take the things of value with us. If we're taking the Stephen Gerrard videos with us because we think that that's basically as good as it got from a human point of view, or if we're taking kind of like some artworks with us because we think that that's basically as good as it got. that's, it, that's it. about as well as creatures like that as have done. That's again an empirical norm I think what we're we doing.
0: Fine is a masterpiece of philosophy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, think that's the, I think that's of a kind, which kind of goes with the masterpiece of the sciences. It's you know, so epistemic masterpiece.
0: So, masterpiece of um, so I was wondering about the relation between the ideal and the uh, realistic treatments here. You seem to think that there was almost a sort of one-way direction where you would fix on the ideal and then the realistic treatments would go gather the data as to how, how close we were approaching to the idea. Um, why do you have to think that? Because you might think that um, in coming up with, with these things, you have kind of reflective equilibrium. You don't quite know what exactly is the ideal. that's the realistic. You come to have a better assessment of the abilities of human beings in certain domains, and then you adjust your theory.
1: Yeah, I, I actually wanted to kind of deny that. I mean, just when I was explaining the general shape of the picture, I did one for example, to think of, like, the Kantian maxims as being formulated in very complicated mixtures of descriptive and thick evaluative concepts, many of which may be open to rejection. It's not the kind of thick evaluative concepts we have to have. Um, what, the, what the ideal bit gives you is the story about the normative authority. And the story about the normative authority is not something that is given by the social scientific theory. The social scientific theory doesn't end with the claim that basically our grounds. The grounds of obligation for adopting this tax system rather than this tax system is that it's better for um, dealing with the valuable things. That's not what the social science does. It just says, look, um, suppose for as a working hypothesis that these were the valuable things. I mean, this is, and then so I don't know if you've ever seen some of the uh, papers on uh, funding for the arts that the Adam Smith. Uh, and she should under Thatcher in the 80s generated and they basically said look um, you know, uh, our measure of artistic value is you know, will people pay to preserve it um, under that measure they just gave the normal you know, Adam Smith account of why there are no public funding for the arts, no arts education in schools. If people wanted it they would pay for it themselves. If they didn't pay for it themselves that's because it's not valuable. Now my view is that that's the kind of thing that an economic theory of a particular kind can do. What it's not going to do is give you a story about whether that type of economic theory is ignoring the things which actually are valuable. It's just, that's what I was thinking of. I mean,
0: you might not think that that's the way it works for all kinds of norms. So, I, I'm not familiar with the, this area, but if you think of people thinking about norms of reasoning and so on, mm-hmm. and you, then you think of the heuristics and biases tradition. So yeah, you yeah, see yeah. that there's, there's, there's going to be a reevaluation of what's...
1: Definitely, called. yeah. No, that's definitely right. I mean, um, that, that, that's the way I'm thinking about... Um, so I'm thinking about the... You have a basic... You, you, the norms are... In a sense, the norms are very general, and then the facts about human life, and the facts about the workings of human beings and human society into that in quite a, a kind of rich way. So we could have responded to the Milgram experiments by saying look, what we've been shown is that it's really difficult for people when they're told by a guy in a white coat not to torture people, that the norms were too high. That basically actually, let's just revise the norms, so actually it is okay to, to torture people as long as the guy in a white coat is telling you that. I take it we don't want to say that. But what we do want to say is look, don't, you, the norms don't change. It's still wrong to be inflicting pain on people just because somebody's telling you to do it. When it says Heart attack danger, and the guy screaming and pleading with you not to do it. But the way in which we ought to organise uh, our social arrangements has to take into account the fact that people have been, I mean, of all the, the experiments in cognitive psychology, the Milgram uh, experiments are the ones which have been most successfully duplicated across a very wide range of different cultures and situations. And so you, would, you wouldn't want to, for example, if you were thinking about certain forms of social organisation in terms of like deference to experts and so on, you would really want to take into account the fact that people do just about, probably do just about anything as long as someone who they take to be an expert to them it's okay to do it. That's something that you need to take into account in your planning, your rational planning for how are we going to preserve what's valuable here? Well, here's one thing, don't let guys who like codes tell you to push buttons if you're connected to the other side, <laughs> that's what I was thinking, <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: I think on that note, we've come to the end of our time. Uh, I want to thank the British Society of Aesthetics for supporting this series, and it remains to thank Andy for <laughs> <laughs>